Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. Uh, we have a wonderful, wonderful day this morning. You know, it's raining and drizzling outside and kind of need that rain and sunshine and perhaps seed and other things that get things to grow. And today we have Jennifer Bryant, who's with Waycliffe, and she's going to talk about how you grow businesses. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Vernon. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being on. Let me ask you first, how did you get involved with co-ops? So it's an interesting story. I think that when I was in my mid-20s, I was actually at E Street Cinema, and someone in the row behind me was talking about a trip that they took to Cuba. And so I turned around and I asked them, you know, how'd you get to go to Cuba at this point, um, much like you know, we're getting back to now, there were all these restrictions on travel to Cuba. And so I turned around and had this conversation. And then a year later, I was in Cuba. And Cuba was the first time that I had seen large scale agricultural co-ops. And it was a turning point in my life. And so we got to talk to members of these co-ops. And I came back from Cuba, and I was just fully on board with cooperatives. And I was asking people, you know, I, I saw these these cooperatives. Why aren't we doing this here? And come to find out, of course, that people are doing it here and people have been doing it here for generations. It's interesting, after that trip to Cuba, just looking at the church that I grew up in, the, the church that I had been a part of and that my family has been a part of for a very long time also had a mutual aid society, also had, um, you know, a cooperative component. And so I came back from Cuba and really realized that cooperatives had been around me uh, the whole time. Fantastic. So you're in your mid-20s in a theater and you're, you're listening to somebody else's conversation. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> and then you say, now, had they gone to Cuba because of co-ops? No, they actually went to Cuba with an organization called the Vincenaremos Brigade, which is celebrating its 50th year this year. Um, they went on their first trip to Cuba in 1969, and it is the world's oldest Cuban solidarity project. And so that's who I also went to Cuba with, the Vincenaremos Brigade. Okay, so you're, you have a lot of curiosity going on in your world. Yes. <laughs> and it sounds like you're also kind of brave to say, okay, I'm going to go to Cuba. And yeah, you're in your mid twenties. So you look like you're still in your mid twenties. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. So you went to Cuba. You found out about these large agriculture co-ops, and therefore you got bit by the cooperative bug, which I've gotten mm -hmm. bit by too. So where did you go from there in this whole co-op world? Well, from there, but, I live in D.C. And so I came back, I was working at a nonprofit organization and it was a nonprofit organization 
that worked with black women business owners. And I got into that work because I have long recognized that many of the issues in the African-American community have economics at its core. And so I started working at this black business women's nonprofit because I thought that business would be a way that we could raise the economic wealth, overall wealth of our communities. What I found that you know, individual independent business owners increase their personal wealth um, and that it doesn't necessarily trickle down to everyone else in the community. And so from that nonprofit, I got a job with the D.C. Black Worker Center, which didn't at that point exist, but I got a job to help start the D.C. Black Worker Center. And so I went more in the direction. Let me me go back a minute. Mm -hmm. You said that you you got into this nonprofit about w- black women owned businesses because you had a sense that economics at the core of mm-hmm. particular why blacks don't have is the economics. But I did economics was the core of slavery uh, and most of Jim Crow and all of that and all of this stuff about. Uh, not getting us to vote to me is all economics is all money driven. If the whites can be the only one to vote, then they can put in whatever program they want and whatever people they want, and they can keep us out of it. In slavery, they they paid us zero dollars for our labor, and therefore they got all of the wealth. So it's economics to me, more so than hate. Some of the hate came afterwards, I think, when they, they pitted poor blacks against poor whites, that all of this hate came up. But at the core of it, it was somebody that's saying, I want to make more money, or somebody's, I want to make more money, and I want to make this money off the labor, the cheap labor of slavery or Jim Crow and all of that. So I think that's what's at the core of it today. Well, I would argue that the core of all of our issues in this country is racialized capitalism. And the reasons why I'm interested in labor and cooperative economics is because I think that community wealth building is a way for us to begin to undo and move in the direction of real economic equity and real economic democracy. So I think we're saying the same thing. You call it racialized capitalism. Yeah. And I think we are saying the same thing. You know, the the issues in our community are rooted in a deep history of, you know, both racial exclusion and economic exclusion. And we're, we agree on that point. Okay. So if we can keep them out of the economics, we make more and we'll call it, we'll call it whatever we want to call it. They're three fifths of a man or they don't have the brain power. We'll call it and label it whatever we want to label it. But at the core of it is how can I make more money and keep the money out of their hands? Okay. So mm-hmm. when you found about co-ops, what did you think about this as it relates to, you call it community wealth building? Yeah. So with a background in labor and after I left the DC Black Workers Center, I went to the the AFL-CIO to work for one of their constituent organizations. And the AFL-CIO is the country's largest labor federation. But what I found in the labor space is, you know, I live in uh, Ward 7, which is east of the river in Washington, D.C., which is a predominantly African-American community. And when I would go out to talk to workers east of the river in Ward 7 and Ward 8, I would find that, you know, people were actively seeking employment, 
And there's such a gap between the jobs that are available and the skills and education of folks that are looking for jobs that, you know, there's significant unemployment. And in D.C., the African-American unemployment rate is double that of the white unemployment rate. And that's true in many places across the United States. So I found that it wasn't just about, you know, workforce development and getting people jobs, but that we actually would have to create our own jobs just to meet the enormous need of folks that are unemployed um, in the community that I live in. And so that's when I really got even more interested in cooperatives as a way of, um, of helping to put folks to work in our community that were actively seeking employment. I totally agree with you from from my experience, and I live in Ward 7 also. Yeah, I know. We're neighbors. Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. So it's like I have it that co-ops are a way of getting people trained through the fifth principle of co-ops, and it's a way of getting wealth because of is it the second or third principle of co-ops. So you put some money in and you get some money back. So if there's mm-hmm. a profit made and you can get your salary and most salaries in co-ops are higher than in non-co-ops. So the salaries are higher, benefits are higher. And if there's a profit, they can share in that profit and they decide that. So I have it that co-ops is the one way and I call it redistribution of wealth. Somebody mm-hmm. argued with me on the program. So I had to rechange that. It's redistribution of every earned dollar, new earned dollar. I don't expect mm-hmm. wealthy people to or even the government to give us that forty acres and a mule. That that just don't ever see that happening. It would be kinda nice. They did it for Japanese after World War Two, but I just don't see that happening. So how can we create our own wealth? Now, I find co-ops is the only way I've seen to do that. You call it solidarity, I think? Yeah, I think whether we call it solidarity economics, whether we call it, you know, I think we're moving in the direction of a just economy. I don't think co-ops will get us all the way there, but I think that the values and the principles that um, co-ops are built on are the values and principles that we'll need to build the society that we ultimately want. So I think co-ops are, are a strong step in the direction of, of where we want to go collectively. Okay. It would be interesting to have a conversation. I don't know about now, but you say values and principles of the co-ops would get us a long way to where we want to go. I'd like to kind of get a glimpse of what, do you mean by that in terms of how far can it get us and then where we have to go further? Because it's the only thing that I have seen that can halfway get us there. I, the yeah. capitalistic model I, won't in any way, shape or Yeah, face. and I guess my only reservation, I think that co-ops are getting us on the path, but if we're building co-ops on the foundation of capitalism, we'll never get all the way there until we move past that foundation. I don't think that you can ever build equity on the foundation of capitalism, and that's just my personal belief. But I think that when we start building cooperatives, when people start really um, internalizing true democracy, true democratic decision-making, then we are walking on a pathway towards something different than the system that we currently live under. And I think that co-ops can help make that road. But I don't think that co-ops are the be-all and end-all, but I think that they're an important step of the direction um, that we want to go in. 
That's very interesting because I think there's this this constant struggle between capital and labor. Yeah. And I'm I'm hearing you say on on the if the basis is capitalism and we're building co-ops on top of it, then it would only take us so far. And I kind of get that, although I do believe as we get more and more capital in the co-op arena mm-hmm. that where we can have our own capital and we're not necessarily going out to Chase Morgan or somebody to help us get the capital, if we can have our own capital in the co-op world, then it sort of flips. You have the cooperative world as the base and they also need capital, though, but they create their own. And, that and that's sense. why I'm really excited to be at the Washington Area Community Investment Fund now, where we recently launched the Employee Ownership Initiative with the support of uh, city community development. And WACUS, where I work, is a community development financial institution, a CDFI, and we provide technical assistance and access to capital for small business owners who can't access capital in traditional ways for various reasons. And, and Jennifer, so we, can I get you to hold right there? That's a great place to stop for our first break. And we're going to come back. And that's a great segue between building a solidarity economy or a, a just economy um, with values and principles of co-ops into Waketh and the Employee Ownership Initiative that you're working in. I'm excited about it and really want to hear more about what you're trying to do. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Information is power, and that's why WOL is a great, great partner with us. And the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about cooperatives. And Jennifer Bryan has given us some information today so that you can go out and perhaps start your own co-op. And she's going to be telling you some ways that you might be able to get involved in a co-op with this information. But the information only becomes power when you use it. Got to put some action to it, like striking the match to gasoline or to we used to start a fire at camp. Without that striking a match, match, you could not get the energy out of the log. And that's what's, what's here. Information is power, but only when you use it. Jennifer, before we took break, we were talking about Wakeup is who you're working for and the Employee Ownership Initiative. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So I work at WACIF, which is an acronym that stands for the Washington Area Community Investment Fund. We've been around in the D.C. area since 1987, and our mission is to increase equity and economic opportunity in underserved communities in Washington, D.C. by investing knowledge, social and financial capital in low and moderate income entrepreneurs. And our mission is really driven by three strategic pillars. We believe in inclusive entrepreneurship, community wealth building, and equitable economic opportunity. And so, as I mentioned before the break, uh, in the fall, WAKEF launched the Employee Ownership Initiative. And WAKEF actually got its start back in the late 80s, funding housing cooperatives in D.C., of which there are many. And so we're kind of going back to those roots recognizing that as um, 
a recent report from NCRC shows that D.C. is experiencing some of the most um, intense gentrification in the country that not only affects housing affordability, but it also affects commercial affordability. It also impacts uh, businesses' ability to stay in the area. So one core piece of our employee ownership initiative is employee ownership conversions. Uh, We're really focused on retiring business owners And the legacy business initiative report that the Democracy at Work Institute put out recently shows that there are an estimated 2,666 business owners of color that are nearing retirement in the D.C. area. So we want to make sure that we are, one, providing training and resources to these retiring business owners and introducing them to employee ownership both worker-owned cooperatives and employee stock ownership plans as potential exit options for their business. We're also partnering with the ICA group, who's been doing employee ownership conversions for 40 years, to provide technical assistance to three to five businesses to help them convert to employee ownership. So that's one of the core kind of focuses of the employee ownership initiative at WACUS. We also are providing technical assistance and access to capital to existing and emerging worker-owned cooperatives in D.C. Okay. You said a mouthful or two. And, I do. Um, <laughs> I want to go all the way back to Wake Up with funding housing co-ops and started in 1987. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kept trying to figure out where had I interfaced with Wakelift. I think it was back then. Because I was doing some conversions, and I know Lisk was involved with it, um, mm-hmm. Ramon Jacobson and Lisk. And so I think there was some borrowing with, from Wakelift also, or technical assistance. I don't know. But 32 years you've been here, and I, I came to D.C. in 86, so we're about the same time growing up in D.C. But I want to give a shout-out to Anita Bonds, council member Anita Bonds. She started the LEC Task Force, Limited Equity Co-op Task Force, and those would have been the the, the uh, businesses, a lot of the businesses that Wakelift would have funded back then, funding housing co-ops. And there's about 100 of them and looking at ways to keep them around and also create some new ones. And so she st- started this group, which I was fortunate enough to be on. And we gave an initial report with recommendations and we're going to come back and finalize them by September, October time frame. But she has it that co-ops is the answer Housing co-ops is the answer to the gentrification problem, and I think it is too. So I just want to go back and get that. And you said you agree? I do agree, yeah. And I think that, you know, the organizing that helped to create the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act that really fuels a lot of the, the new limited equity housing cooperatives that we saw back in the 70s and 80s, that organizing really grew out of a wave of gentrification that was happening during that period. So we saw that it was a way that people were able to stay, you know, before. And I think that it can be a way for people to stay again. Yes. And have this affordable housing and uh, have say in how the housing goes. And a lot of times those are much better than apartment buildings. Even they they Mm -hmm. last longer and they have their challenges. So, Okay, so this I'm very interested in this conversion piece, this employee ownership conversion. How is that working? What is that about? 
You know, it's been very exciting since we launched it. We formed some great partnerships. We've been working very closely, as I mentioned, with the ICA group, with City Community Development, with the Democracy at Work Institute. We've also gotten a lot of support from D.C. government, particularly the D.C. Department of Small and Local Business Development. And the way that we've kind of started engaging small business owners around employee ownership is through exit planning. There's a lot of support available for small business owners around starting up a business, around growing their businesses in D.C. There is not a lot of support out there um, around exiting your business. And so WAKEIF has really inserted ourselves kind of as a one-stop shop where small business owners can come to learn about how to exit their business, how to plan for that, and to think through what their options are in advance. And so we're really introducing employee ownership as an exit option and helping small business owners think about how they can prepare um, themselves and how they can prepare their employees to begin to step into uh, employee ownership. And that it not only benefits them because, you know, you can still come out well economically as a small business owner, if you convert to employee ownership, but you're also building community wealth for your employees. You're helping your business stay in the community and it really benefits everyone. And so a lot of these small business owners are not just thinking about the money, but they're thinking about their legacy and employee ownership is a great option to really foster a strong legacy for small business owners. And so I was reading in some uh, the press release that you all had, and it says something like, in the U.S., baby boomers own 67% of small businesses. So just taking it out of the D.C. area, and that there's 67% of small businesses is owned by baby boomers, and 85% of them don't have a secession plan. Mm-hmm. I found that just phenomenal and that a lot of them would just close up. Yeah. I think that, you know, uh, folks have been calling this moment, the silver tsunami because we're having all of these baby boomer business owners retire and it could either create a small business closure crisis, which is what project equity has been, you know, kind of warning about, but it could also create a tremendous opportunity for an enormous wealth transfer from these baby boomer business owners to their employees. And so that is what we're really pushing for in D.C. through the Employee Ownership Initiative. Okay, and so SBA, Small Business Administration, didn't they just pass something called a Main Street Act to help with this kind of a thing? Yeah, so they passed the Main Street Employee Ownership Act, which will make it easier for employee-owned businesses to access SBA financing, among other things. And so, yeah, it's a really exciting development. Uh, What I'm seeing right now, and people have been doing work around employee ownership for a long time, I think we're in a very special moment because there's been so much interest coalescing around worker-owned cooperatives and around employee stock ownership plans from government, from the private sector, from nonprofits and community development financial institutions and others that we're in a really right moment to push employee ownership forward. 
so I think it's an exciting, exciting time. And in the CDFI space, community development financial institutions, there's been a lot of interest in financing cooperatives. There are challenges in financing employee ownership because, you know, banks and lenders need to know whose stuff do you take if something doesn't go right. And I think that it's been historically difficult for employee-owned businesses to access capital sometime, and that's changing. It's been changing slowly, and now I think with the passage of the Main Street Employee Ownership Act, with all of the interest from CDFIs and others, that it's changing much more quickly now. And there have been CDFIs like... Wait, wait, before you go any further, let's come back and give those examples, but we have to take our second break. I just didn't want to stop you because I love it with this silver tsunami coming up. uh, That would be one of the things that would cause all of his interest, but we'll be right back. Sure. Everything Cooperative. The program is sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank. NCB's mission is to, is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And Jennifer Bryant is our guest today, and she was saying that most co-ops cannot get loan from banks because banks are only interested in three things. They're interested in how they get their money back, how they get their money back and how they get their money back. So they look for individuals that can sign and they want those individuals to already have assets. In a co-op, it's a group owned and there's no individuals to sign and in low income communities, too often they don't have the assets because we talked about with slavery and Jim Crow and all of the things that goes on, it's harder for blacks to build up net worth. So with with that in mind, NCB have put in programs together with CDFIs and others to help fund programs in low-income communities and because they look at other things besides just capital. And Jennifer, we were talking before you, we took break of the Main Street em- Employment Ownership Act from the Small Business Administration and community uh, development financial institutions and getting monies and putting them in to create more worker co-ops through conversions. So do you have any examples of of these that has happened in the D.C. area or that you're working on? So uh, the Employee Ownership Initiative just launched in the fall, and we have been using exit planning and employee ownership workshops as an entry point to get folks into the pipeline of conversion. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to facilitate three to five conversions over the the first two years of the initiative. And that's a very ambitious goal. We have some business owners in the pipeline and they are starting that process, but we have not, you know, completed any conversions because conversions can take 
12 to 24 months or longer. So, you know, we're, we're just at the starting point, but there are lots of exciting examples from other parts of the country. I was mentioning that the Cooperative Fund of New England has been doing conversions for a very long time. So has the Working World, the Shared Capital Cooperative, and others. And so I think that, you know, we have lots of models that this can work, that it has worked other places. And so we're excited to help small business owners convert here in D.C. Do you have any examples of ones that have been done in those other three organizations? I wish I would have had that question in advance. I okay. definitely no, would have it's, pulled it's, up. Yes or no, it's cool. It's cool. It's good. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, go I don't have any off the top of my head, but there are many. And I uh, encourage listeners, um, Project Equity um, has a lot of of examples on their website. Also, the the Democracy at Work Institute has a project called Becoming Employee-Owned, and they have reports and examples um, on their website as well. Also, just a a really in-depth overview of the conversion process. And so those are the resources that we're building out for our initiative. Um, But no, I don't have any examples off the top of my head. Okay. So I want to get Project Equity in here, or one of those others in here to give us examples. And I was going to ask you about this process. That was the next question of what's the process that one would go through to do this conversion, or how are you helping people with this exit planning? Yeah, so we're really starting off with education and We have been leading workshops on exit planning in partnership with some of our partners like City Community Development and the Democracy at Work Institute. We also have a workshop coming up in July with the Small Business Administration, and that one is focused on ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans. But the first step in the process is education. From there, um, I kind of meet with business owners one-on-one to do a bit of pre-assessment. And so there's a set of questions that we have a conversation around, around their goals, around, you know, their revenue, the number of employees to really see where they are when they anticipate retiring and to think about what the best next steps are for them. Um, From that point, after our initial kind of conversation with the business owner, we look at is the right next step more education about employee ownership? Is the right next step um, if they are definitely no? And some of the business owners we've met, they've already, they're already familiar with employee ownership. They've read about it on their own. It's something that they know that they're interested in. And so from there, we move to direct technical assistance and really begin the conversion process. There are other business owners who are interested in the idea of employee ownership, but they have some reservations. One of the common ones is, you know, I think employee ownership is great, but I don't think that my employees can handle running a business on their own. And so then we go into more education about how employee ownership actually functions and how you can prepare employees to to take on the roles and responsibilities of being worker owners. But I think that, you know, a lot of business owners just have reservations about whether or not the business will be able to survive. And and that is all, those are legitimate questions. And we help people think about, you know, how to address those concerns and that those are concerns that are easy to address. Well, five years ago, I started a process to get my employees to buy my business. And that's a property management business. 
and they came up with they didn't have anybody to step in the, into the leadership position and they didn't do it and then a couple of years ago I tried again and the conclusion was there wasn't enough revenue to make it worthwhile uh, so I'm about ready to close oh no yeah well yeah. Vernon I would love to have a conversation with you we, we should discuss that more because, you know, I think that there is always a way and in exit planning, you know, when you're looking at exit options, you may not be prepared to move towards employee ownership now, but you can look at what would be the revenue that I would need to make a successful employee ownership transition. And if I'm not there now, what growth strategy can I put in place to get to that revenue number? And so we help uh, small business owners think through things like, like that um, and then provide the technical assistance to actually implement the strategy so that they can get to the place that they need to be to uh, pursue employee ownership. See, one of the reasons I don't want to close and it isn't mm-hmm. the money. I had told them that financing was not going to be an issue five, six years ago when we first started this. But there's a lot of wealth of knowledge and mm-hmm. uh, these limited equity co-ops particularly, but co-ops in general, the, one of the main things they say that there's not good property managers. And so we have a wealth of knowledge, not good property managers for co-ops because this model takes a little bit different property management that than an apartment building and or a condo. But, and that is that the group, the co-op has to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and getting this relationship between management and the co-op, the governance is critical and getting government governance to where they will make the policies and then also make those decisions that they need to make. It takes a certain skill set and it just doesn't automatically happen on either the management side or the governance side. So I don't want to mm-hmm. lose that, but it's like, yeah. how do you, we, we need to have a conversation. Yeah, we should. Put something in place. And- And I think that, you know, you are a great example of the type of business owners that, you know, we've been working with. It's folks that have been knee deep in their business for decades. And so I think that particularly for low and moderate income entrepreneurs, you're so involved in the day to day aspects of your business that, you know, folks don't necessarily have the time to come up for air and put a written exit plan in place, to put a written succession plan in place so that you're thinking about the knowledge transfer in advance to prepare people to step into those roles and kind of carry on the torch of the knowledge that's been gained over years. And so I think that, you know, even if you are getting closer to being ready to exit the business, it's really never too late to put those things into place. And I personally have knowledge of your business because you're one of the few in the area. And so we definitely want to preserve legacy businesses like your property management company um, in DC, because if you were to leave, who would fill the void? And that's the, that's the question that we're asking with a lot of these businesses as we face this, this silver tsunami retirement wave. Well, I'm not silver tsunami yet. I'm only 71, so I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm just, I get tired of the day-to-day, this sort of fixing toilets and not being able to breathe and look at the bigger picture. But just mm-hmm. you know, fixing toilets and taking care of the issues and stuff, that's the day-to-day, everyday property management business. And having people that can do that and do the 
the planning for budgeting and looking far further out for the, the property when the roof needs to be changed or whatever. I like doing that part, but the day to day, I don't particularly like that anymore. I've been doing it now for since 93, how many 20 some years. So yeah. And that's the reason I'm looking to sell is just to get into something more that's bigger term, longer term, bigger mm-hmm. focus. And I really, that's why I really enjoy this LEC task force because it's looking at how do you keep these limited equities co-ops going and how do you do more? That's the kind of questions that I'd like to be about and be into. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let's figure out a day and a plan when we can do this and lay out a um, if there's some technical support and how to how to how to get this done. Yeah, like that. I'd love to do that definitely. All right, so I am really wanting to get some examples of these co-ops. I'm thinking I've got to get somebody else on the program or you with somebody else on the program so we can see. Um, I have it that any business can be a worker cooperative. Any business, small, big, short, long, it doesn't make any difference. If the, if the owner, if the if the employees own and control the business, then it's an, an employee business. So which printing companies, even the McDonald's of the world could be, the franchises could be employee owned. And so your job is just all kinds of opportunity for what you're doing. Do you agree with that? Um, I think that, you know, we see examples of employee ownership in almost every sector in our society. So I definitely think that, you know, most businesses, you know, can become employee owned, um, whether that be a worker owned cooperative or an employee stock ownership plan. I think there there are many different options. There are many different ways that employee ownership can look. Um, I'm actually, I pulled up Project Equity has a report called Case Studies, Business Conversions to Worker Cooperatives. And in this report, they kind of lay out the different types of conversions um, and they kind of, uh, they identify four different types of conversions. Um, Some of them are conversions where the business owner decides to convert to employee ownership and decides to stay on um, with the business after they convert to employee ownership. Um, The second type is where... I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to take our final break and we'll come back and talk about these four different types. I'm glad you found it. And and then we'll we'll go from there. But we'll be right back after this last one. Last break. everybody this is vernon oaks and the program is everything cooperative and we have miss jennifer bryant who's the program manager for community wealth building initiative at wakeless and jennifer you were getting ready to tell us about four examples of conversions what are those and what web page did you go to Well, I was just sharing that uh, Project Equity, which is an organization that's based in California that also helps to facilitate employee ownership conversions, they released a report called Case Studies, Business Conversions to Worker Cooperatives, which is available on their website, projectequity.org. It's actually project-equity.org. 
And in this report, they identify four types of employee ownership conversions. And that just goes back to the earlier point that, you know, employee ownership conversions um, can look differently for different businesses. And so the first type is when an owner sells to existing employees with the intentions of remaining with the business. I think that a common misconception is that if you do an employee ownership conversion that you have to exit. Some people do an employee ownership conversion and the selling owner decides to stay on and help make sure that the business thrives after the conversion. So that's type one. Type two is when the owner sells an existing to existing employees with the intention of leaving the company. And uh, type three is when the owner decides to convert to employee ownership and then brings on new people to be founding worker owners. The last type is when employees leave and start an employee-owned business together or restart a failed business as a worker cooperative. And so an example of the last one, there's actually a really beautiful video about this example on YouTube but it's New Era Windows, and this was a project that was um, completed by the Working World, which finances uh, worker-owned cooperatives. And with New Era Windows, it's a window. It was a window factory, and um, they were about to close. And the workers came together, and they decided that they were going to, instead of closing, they were going to make the business and and put a worker-owned cooperative. They were able to revive the business, restart it as a worker-owned cooperative, and it's still thriving. So New Era Windows is one example. But a business doesn't have to be in distress or about to uh, go under for it to be converted to employee ownership. I think with the many employee stock ownership plans and with worker-owned cooperatives, there are thriving businesses where the owner decides that they want to exit or they want to just establish broad-based ownership structure, and they convert thriving businesses to employee ownership. So, you know, there are many different ways that it can look. There are many different ways that it can go. New Era Windows is one example, but there are many. I like Okay, so the four types are... They sell, and then the owner stays with the business. That's one. Or they sell to the employees, and the owner leaves the business. Mm-hmm. Or sell it to the employees, and they bring in new people. Mm-hmm. Or the employees will either leave and start their own employee work own business, or they revitalize and put new air, new breath, new oxygen, new life into a business that's gone under or going under. Yeah, that's it. And that sort of fits in what I said early, though. Those are the types from a standpoint of selling and the ownership, but it could be any business. You just talked about, was it mm-hmm. New Air, A-I-R, Windows? Um, new Era, like E-R-A. E-R, okay. That's a manufacturing business, if I remember it right. It is. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I I had the opportunity to go to the National Center for Employee Ownership Conference in Pittsburgh this year. And there were businesses from every sector there, from manufacturing to construction to food product businesses. There were so many businesses that I recognized the name but I did not know that they were employee-owned. And, for example, I was sitting at a table at a luncheon, and there were members, uh, workers from Cliff Bar there. And I eat Cliff Bars all the time. They sell them in Whole Foods. They sell them in Trader Joe's everywhere. It's a food. It's like energy bars. And Cliff Bars is is partially worker-owned. 
with employee stock ownership plans, which is a type of bought-based ownership, it can be full or partially employee-owned. And for those that may not know, an employee stock ownership plan is like a qualified retirement plan where the business owner sells some or all of their shares in a business to an to an ESOP trust, which owns the shares on behalf of the employees and pays them out, you know, a portion into a qualified retirement plan. There's a lot of tax benefits to ESOPs, um, and ESOPs and employee owners tend to have higher medium wages and more retirement assets, but you can be a full or partial ESOP. And so it was really interesting being at that conference and just seeing that there really are employee-owned businesses in every sector. Yeah, that is exciting. ESOPs, employee stock option plan that the worker co-op is trying to get or have gotten some of the tax benefits that ESOPs get. I don't remember what the status of that, but the ESOPs were getting when they, when they employees buy it, the owner got certain tax benefits by selling to an ESOPs. Yeah. I think one of the, the big differences with ESOPs too, is that if a company is a 100% S corp ESOP, they don't pay federal and often they don't pay state taxes. So, I mean, that's just a ridiculously good benefit for the selling owner. They could also do a 1042 rollover, which defers capital gains. And there are, there are, uh, there are benefits, tax benefits to being a worker owned to, for selling owners who are converting to worker-owned cooperatives as well. I think that they're not the same tax benefits as ESOPs. They don't, there's not the S-Corp tax benefit, but there still are tax benefits, and I think that selling owners who are thinking about conversion should look at both options and see which one is best for their business. And the other major difference between a co-op and an ESOP is that ESOP, the employees may not have control over the business. Yeah, so there are some folks, and this was actually one of the sessions at the National Center for Employee Ownership Conference, was talking about uh, democratic governance. So with a worker-owned cooperative, one of the tenets is that, you know, there has to be some democratic governance in the business. And that can be the case with ESOPs, but it's not always the case, and it's not like a mandatory component. I think that there are new models emerging that for employee stock ownership plans where people are looking at having democratic governance as a component, and some business owners opt to do that, but that is a core difference. Yes. Of the seven principles, number four is autonomy and independence, that the co-op must have this ability to say and have the control. So, yeah, with, with number two, the Democratic member control. So they have to have the control. They have to be autonomous. No government entity over them. Or even looking at the loans that they get, that the employees still have the independence to make their uh, decisions. I and also with, like volunteer you know, and open on, membership. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, it, there's also the one worker, one vote component. And I think that that's really important. And something that I'm really interested in about cooperatives and one reason why I really love cooperatives is I I believe that with cooperatives, the democratic sort of values that are embodied in cooperatives, I think they extend beyond the workplace. So when you really get to practice democratic governance in your workplace, I think it extends to how you operate in your community. I think it extends to how you participate civically uh, in society. And I think that it just really, it 
expands and radiates outward. I think that being a member of a worker-owned cooperative really helps people better participate in society. And I, I think that that's one of the benefits that we should talk about more. Yeah, they call the democracy in a co-op a small d and I think it's the big D because you get much more mm-hmm. involvement. You only have 42% of the people that's eligible to, to vote in, in the U.S. that will vote. But in a co-op, it's much, much higher than that. So I think that's the big D uh, Democratic. And I've also heard on this program where people will leave the board of a housing co-op or worker on co-op and they'll, they'll run for the uh, school board or for city council. It's, yeah, it that's beautiful. Them. Yeah, it goes that way. Jennifer, we only have a couple minutes left, and I would just like for you to talk about the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which talks about economic determinants of health and the impact of worker cooperative ownership on health outcomes. What's yeah, that? so. You only have a minute <laughs> to do that. <laughs> three years ago, I had the opportunity to become a member of the first cohort of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Culture of Health Leaders Program. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is one of, if not the largest public health foundations in the country, and they launched four programs under the banner of the culture of health to bring together folks across sectors, both inside public health and and from other sectors, government, private sector, nonprofits, et cetera, to really think about how we could build a culture of health in our communities and our project, I'm on a team with two other young people from east of the river in Washington, D.C. Our project looks at economic determinants of health and how worker-owned cooperatives can um, help improve people's health outcomes east of the river. It's a project where we're piloting a food cooperative east of the river. Um, It's very exciting and, and we're very happy to be working on it. We've got to go, and I'd be really interested to see your what what those outcomes are. But thank you very much, Jennifer, and thank everybody for listening. And please live this week cooperatively, and we'll see you next Thursday. Thanks. Thanks.